Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, Professor of History and American Studies Joanne Freeman on violence in Congress. No one wanted this duel to happen, and the two people who end up fighting have nothing against each other. And the fact that it still happened really shows the pull and the power and the problems inherent in a politics of violence. Like, they may threaten each other and occasionally even hit each other, wave weapons at each other, beat each other, but people usually don't kill each other in Congress. Right now, there's very little faith in many institutions of national government, and Congress is even, in a sense, chipping away at some of its own stability and authority due to some of the actions and words of its members. Joanne, welcome to Chatter. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about a a topic that is quite relevant to to today, which is violence in and around Congress. And on this solemn anniversary of the January 6th incident, it's it's good to look back at history and, and see what we can learn from the past, what's new, what's different, what isn't. And also just to arm ourselves with with examples from what has worked before and what so to speak what hasn't yeah <laughs> and and I'm struck by this because I remember reading a while back your book The Field of Blood which is all about violence in Congress before the the Civil War uh, hopefully I don't have to say before the first Civil War and there was a line in it that that struck me as you were summing up a lot of things so I, I want to start with this big picture point of view. You wrote about Congress. Its trials are the nation's trials. Its flashpoints are the nation's flashpoints. Its strengths and accomplishments are the ultimate proof of powerful bonds of union. Its flaws reveal the human realities underlying the process of national governance, and its failings are vital reminders that even the strongest of nations can fall. Those are those are powerful words that point to the importance of the institutions, the the mores, the behaviors in Congress itself. And I'm wondering what you're seeing in the last few years that make that quote and that idea you had even more present in your mind. Right. And and that's in a sense the the quirkiest thing about being a historian of early American politics generally and political violence specifically is that one doesn't do that and write about the 18th century and assume (laughs) you're going to be remarkably timely. So um, this has been an interesting moment to be that kind of historian. Um, You know, I will say certainly there are reverberations and I'm sure we'll chat about some of them between some of what I write about in my book um, and moments in which Congress really did reflect not just polarization, really, but enormous national division that obviously leads to civil war. Um, What's interesting about the current moment is that even in this earlier period, as they're doing things that are obviously very much against the rules, there was some respect for the institution. This was a rougher period, the the first half of the 19th century, um, and everything, in a sense, that it was a period of mobs and, and constant rioting, and even by today's standards, pretty extreme. So just as you said, that is reflected in Congress. 
Today, what I see is, is in some ways, people who don't necessarily respect the institution. And a democratic politics is grounded on, among other things, faith in the process. That's when I, when I teach about the founders, the framers of the Constitution, mm -hmm. that's one point that I always make, which is the Constitution, of course, constructs our government. But more than anything else, it's about setting processes in motion so that when something goes awry in the future or there's a situation that needs to be dealt with, there's at least a starting point that everyone has agreed as the starting point. There's, there's some frame of reference and something that everyone can have faith in as being, at least on the absolute minimal level, sure. the, the political we mm -hmm. of the United States. And we're, right now, and, and in part it's a product of the last few years, right now there's very little faith in many institutions of national government. And Congress is even, in a sense, chipping away at some of its own stability and authority right. due to some of the actions and words of its members. Right. I want to dig down on, on some of that later to actually build on some of the stories we'll tell about the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, and, and so on, because I, I think there's a lot of raw material in American history that most Americans, even very well-educated Americans, don't know. Um, we we skip over it in so many history classes where, frankly, unless you major in history or go and get a graduate degree, yeah, you're, you're probably familiar with the contours of the Compromise of 1850, and you've heard of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and you're you're familiar with the obvious, you know, Fort Sumter. But there's a whole lot of other things in that era that that definitely have relevance to our times that that people don't know enough about. And I'd like to change that in our small way <laughs> here today by talking about some of it. The The history of political violence in the United States a, as the United States, not in the, the revolutionary period, it, it was surprising to me when I did research back on this period specifically related to presidents, that there were so few incidents of violence against presidents early in the Republic. Uh, there was one report of a court-martialed army sergeant who came to the White House angry to threaten John Quincy Adams, but there really wasn't anything until the incidents that affected Andrew Jackson when the, the naval officer, I think Robert Randolph, assaulted him in 1833 and then the uh, assassination attempt in 1835. But I'm less familiar with the incidences of, of violence in Congress. And the only one I'm aware of early on was sometime in the very late 18th century that there was an attack with a cane on the floor of the house, but I didn't, I'm not aware of much until the period you're really focusing on, which is the mid 1830s until 1860. And I'm wondering if you have any insight on why it is that the norm of no violence within Congress uh, was pretty, pretty strong one for, it seems like a, a full generation, generation and a half. Well, I think there are a few reasons for that. And, and one obvious one is that by the time you get to the 1830s, the United States itself, politically and culturally, is a different place from where it was in 1790 or 1800. So hmm. by 1830, you actually have the beginning of what we would now recognize as a party system. 
So in the past, although we had people taking sides on issues, they were not entirely comfortable with party combat that we now take for granted. Mm -hmm. That begins to be not just available, but something that's approved of and encouraged by the time you get to the 1830s. So politics itself becomes more grounded on pretty fierce competition between sides at a violent period in American politics. So Mm -hmm. that's part of it. Um, And part of it has to do with the culture, Um, you know, within Congress. If you're looking at 1790, the government isn't even 10 years old at that point. Uh, And even in the beginning of the 19th century, for a while, there really was an understanding or at least an assumption among that early generation that had to do with the creation of the government that it was really new and really weak and really experimental, and they couldn't push too hard or it would come down. Mm. So at least early on, there's lots of fierce debate. There's a lot of polarization and even some violence generally leading up to the election of 1800, which is the first time we see power change hands. Um, But it really isn't until a moment when politics and society become feelingly different that you see that reflected in Congress, which gets back to the point that you started with, that Congress in, in ways deliberate and otherwise really does reflect where the nation is at a given time. Sure. Do you think there was a, a, a role here, at least partially, in the fact that the founders, as as we generally conceive them publicly, so I'm talking Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, Adams, even Monroe, they were around uh, until the 1830s. And it was only uh, after, you know, obviously Adams and Jefferson dying on the same day, uh, John Quincy Adams, not exactly a founder, although we'll Son talk- of a founder. Yeah. And, and, and we'll talk because he was involved in the early administrations. Um, he, he has a connection to them in a way that in effect made him immune from some of the violence in Congress. We'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, apart from him, all of the core founders were gone by the 1830s. And perhaps just the presence of a Madison and a Jefferson and an Adams corresponding with people serving in Congress and being being seen in the public as still being alive almost some almost presented some kind of a shield around some of the worst behaviors that people could bring into the Congress itself. That's a really interesting idea. I mean, I think I do think that having those sorts of people present in a way, would be a kind of reminder and a kind of restraint. You know, it's kind of the same idea that as long as George Washington was president, Mm -hmm. people kind of held back a little bit because George Washington was president. And he was pretty much the the most revered person in the United States at that time. Um, So, you know, in this um, later period, that would be a big reminder. But I also think along the lines of what you're saying, there are moments, sort of generational shifts that you see in Congress. And one of them is this early period when the founding generation Mm -hmm. passes. Bump ahead a little further in time and you see the people like Daniel Webster and Henry Clay Mm -hmm. retire and leave Congress. And that's another kind of a shift in culture. So you're right. There is kind of a generational wave pattern, I guess, as to what happens in Congress and and what people sustain and, and what people really don't restrain anymore. Yeah. I find that interesting that, you know, Henry, Henry Clay, there was a, a shift and not necessarily for the better when, when he left. And yet he himself was known to engage in the dueling and the drinking and all of that stuff. So, um, 
there seems to be, a, I don't know if evolution is the right word, but certainly the development of a, a unique culture around what it means to bring to bring your partisanship and to bring your personal your personal behavior, your personal tendencies towards confrontation um, to the halls of Congress. Well, that's very true. On the other hand, I mean, you mentioned Henry Clay. He's a great example of the kind of strange mix of things that leads to how people behave. So you're mm -hmm. right. Henry Clay is a drinker and a gambler and um, that's all well known. He's sort of a stay up all night drinking and gambling kind of guy. He's also known as the great compromiser. So he also was renowned yeah. in Congress for being that guy, for being the guy that if if you want to forge a compromise, and that would be true personally between congressmen who are disputing each other or more broadly about policy, he's that guy too. So he, there's a personal dimension to Congress that I find really interesting and that clearly affects what it does. And then there's another layer which has to do with the sort of formal proceedings of Congress. And they're interwoven in really interesting ways and sometimes unpredictable ways. I put Henry Clay on my short list of people from the the nation's, you know, founding 50 years that I would love to hang out with for an evening and and chat and because I have a feeling that if you hung out with, you know, Ben Franklin, all he would want to do is look around and like say, "What is this Wi-Fi you have? How does that work?" <laughs> and he'd want to tinker and try to try to figure all these things out where Henry Clay might be impressed with some of the technology and some certainly some of the infrastructure improvements if nothing else but i think he would actually more enjoy the personal side and i would like to uh to get into his brain but anyway that's not possible given modern technology he's dead and he's not yet <laughs> um i want to start talking about some of the some of the violence in congress that, that you really are the the expert on and i'm really curious about the the incident that I think it was John Dawson, if I remember right. He was a Democrat from Louisiana, and it was in the 1840s that he ends up cocking his pistol and having at least three or four armed Southerners around him going after someone. And then the Whigs end up having some people also with weapons, and they have this confrontation on the House floor. But somehow, even in that moment of heat, it, it doesn't actually lead to a shooting. And to me, that was, that was really interesting because we'd already had the, uh, a duel that we'll come back to in a moment. So there, there had been a, a pickup of violence in the house, but this was the case that to me stood out as the dog that didn't bark, that you could have had a literal shootout at that moment because tempers were high and the weapons were there. And something, at least in the, these first few years, from the 1830s into the uh, 1840s, something was still holding people back. And I'm hoping you can talk just a little bit about that dynamic of the politicians, the people who elected them, the belief in the rules of the House primarily, but also in the Senate, that led to this case where there were increasing incidents of confrontations and violence between members of Congress but they weren't escalating to the point of actual shooting deaths on the floor. True. But I think there's a fundamental practical reason for that, which is mm -hmm. um, the people who have guns and the people who are threatening people and threatening them with dual challenges and waving guns around, they don't actually want to shoot up or 
destroy Congress. They want what they want, and they need Congress to be present to get it. So what they want is control, not necessarily violence. So the real power of a lot of these threatening congressmen is that they, as long as they seem like they could follow through on what they're saying Mm -hmm. and are thus, for that reason, threatening and you really need to think about what they're saying – that's where the real power is. If they, if there were a shootout, everything would dissolve and they wouldn't get what they want. So it's a really interesting balance. It's, it's kind of politics by other means. Right. So the threat itself, as long as it has some credibility behind it, is really the important part. It's not the Absolutely. fulfillment of the act. Exactly. It's, hmm. it's the threat, a believable threat, which in a sense, that's the logic of bullying, even even in a modern sense, right? Bullies sure. are people who are scary because they might beat you up. And they, they, they don't make, have to do it. Yeah. They they just have to be threatening for that reason. So that's a big part of really um for a while in Congress, how Southerners um have a, a sort of outsized influence. One of the things that they do because partly because of a slavery regime and partly because they are more likely to be armed and they're comfortable with dueling and those things aren't true in the North. Mm-hmm. They're very violence friendly and they're known as being people who might duel and they're intimidating and they use that kind of threat to silence or intimidate Northerners, to force them into compliance or silence. And you see time and time again, it works pretty well. People don't want to stand up and face that. And if they do, sometimes there's an unfortunate outcome. So Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. It's the threat that's the power. You just have to be the right person with the right history to seem as though you could really fulfill that threat. This is so fascinating to me because not only the history, but the the, the parallels. My my background's in international relations, and almost everything you just said, because we tend to anthropomorphize countries, could be used in talking about international relations and hmm. the threats nations make to each other in hmm. the national security realm and deterrence and those issues. Now, of course, people are making decisions for those countries. So maybe we're not really anthropomorphizing. We're actually talking about the leaders making those decisions uh, on an international scale, just the the way that they do it on in a personal setting. Um, the story I'd really like to start with on this front is the what became the duel between Jonathan Silly, the uh, Democrat, if I recall correctly, mm-hmm. and was it William Graves? I can't remember his first name from um, the wig from Kentucky. So tell us the backstory here. How did these two get to the point where it wasn't just words back and forth? It wasn't just threatening violence. It was was an actual duel that took place with uh, horrible consequences. Right. And and I will say that there are lots of near duels. um, But in the end, there's I don't know, maybe a little bit more than a handful of actual duels on the dueling ground. And I've I've written about this elsewhere that kind of along the lines of what we've just been saying, the point of a duel is to be willing to die to defend your honor. And sometimes that's entirely achievable by exchanging threatening letters mm-hmm, and then apologizing. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of near duels that do just that. But you're right. This one between um, Jonathan Silly and William Graves ends up being a real duel. And What's important to note, if I, if I understand, Joanne, if I understand correctly, important to note that by the 1830s, and this I think took place in 1837 or 1838, that dueling was still a core part of Southern culture. But in Northern culture, it it had it had really faded quite a bit. So it's important that the people we're talking about 
one of them is a northerner, uh, Silly from Maine, and then the um, William Graves being from Kentucky. That's an important dynamic here. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, you know, you could think of it as the dual card that Southerners can play in Congress, because even if someone is is brave enough or foolhardy enough to be willing to fight a duel, he knows that his constituents are going to think of it most likely as a barbaric Southern practice. It's become really a, a totally regional thing by that point. So yeah, that's, there's a great sectional difference and Southerners play that for, for all that it's worth. There's a point down the line, actually after the incident we're about to talk about, when John Quincy Adams, who's in the House, says Southerners, the power that they have is largely due to their ability to duel. That's it. They're silencing everyone because of the threat of dueling. So we yeah. need to have an anti-dueling act. So that tells you right there, that's that's the power of bullying, even if what you're doing is threatening violence. And in an early point at the Silly Graves incident. That's really what happens. I I talk about it in my book because it was a great example of a duel that nobody wanted. No one wanted this duel to happen. And the two people who end up fighting have nothing against each other. And the fact that it still happened really shows the pull and the power and the problems inherent in a politics of violence. What was the actual substantive core of the dispute between them that, that spiraled out of control? Well, um, initially, it has to do with uh, a Whig from Virginia, Henry Wise, who comes into Congress with a newspaper and says, in one way or another, that I have evidence in this newspaper that the um, Democratic Party is corrupt. And Jonathan Silly, who's, you know, he's from Maine, and he's a New Englander, but he's really kind of a confrontational New Englander, stands up and essentially says, that's a lie. At which point, Henry Wise plays the dual card. And very slowly turns around and faces Silly and says something along the lines of, are you saying that I said something untrue? (laughs) And Silly knows what this means and says, well, I'm I'm saying you're not gracious. And wise ups it and says, are you saying that I am a liar? Hmm. And Silly backpedals. But in the course of that discussion, one of the Democrats says, yeah, you're holding up that newspaper, but we all know that the editor of that newspaper is a corrupt guy who accepted bribes, so why should we listen to it anyway? Oh. So what happens is the editor of the newspaper is the offended guy, and he was in New York, and he rides down to Washington to confront the Democrat who insulted him, mm-hmm. which, among other people, was silly. Sure. And he knows William Graves because when Graves from Kentucky was in New York, this guy, his name is James Watson Webb, uh, who's a a, a dueling kind of guy, um, he hosted Graves, so they know each other. So Webb walks into the house, sees Graves, and says, would you mind giving this letter to your colleague, Mr. Silly? Hmm. And it's essentially the kind of letter of inquiry you send at the very beginning of a duel that says something along the lines of, um, I hear you insulted me in this way, uh, explain or right. deny it. Um, and, I deserve and it gives a response. The recipient of the letter a chance to make amends, maybe too strong a term, but no, find a true. Way to resolve it with honor intact. Correct, and that happens a lot. So it's not the official start of a duel, but it's it's like a toe in the water. And um, uh, Graves has a sense that this might not be a good thing to do, and first says. I don't know if I want to get involved in this. And Webb says, oh, no, don't worry. This isn't really the dual part. This is just delivering a letter. Hmm. So Graves delivers it 
to Silly. Silly also has a sense that this is not a good thing, and he really doesn't respect the, the web, so you only duel with people you consider to be your equals. Right. So Silly won't take it. He won't take the letter. Mm-hmm. And Grave says, well, wait, if you won't take the letter, you're suggesting that the person I'm delivering it for isn't a gentleman, and then you're kind of suggesting I'm not one either. This is kind of problematic. Oh, boy. Exactly. It's oh, a big boy. oh boy. So they go back and going. forth. Yeah. It's it's moving into, into bad territory. They go back and forth because the fact of the matter is they like each other fine. They have nothing against each other, but they both realize that there's been a line crossed here and they don't know how to get back across it. Hmm. And they consult with dueling experts and uh, they talk among other people to Henry Clay. Like, how do we get out of this? Henry Clay actually says to Graves, um, let me back up. Henry Clay actually says to, to Graves, you know, you're talking to a northerner here, so you need to, to think how a northerner thinks, and they probably don't understand the rules, so you need to explain it. Right. So, big attempt for it to not happen, but in the end, Silly and Graves end up being the ones fighting duels, because yeah. Graves feels insulted, he feels compelled to defend himself, because that's sort of what honor demands, mm-hmm. and Silly feels compelled to agree, because if he doesn't, he'll be humiliated, and he will have humiliated his constituents and everything that he represents right. as well. So if I remember right, they they leave central Washington, D.C., they go out, they find a dueling grounds of which there's plenty around the city. And um, what was the result of the duel? Well, right. So it, it, it ends up being a fatal duel. Oh. Um, neither one of the men is very good uh, <laughs> with guns, which is unfortunate. Um, the person who's challenged gets to choose weapons and Silly chooses rifles, which um, it's not the first time that happened in Congress, but it's less less common. Southerners tend to pick um, pistols. They exchange fire once um, and one gun misfires. They exchange fire another time and another gun misfires. Each time between the misfiring, the seconds, the sort of representatives of the two duelists come together and try and figure out, like, is this enough? Can we stop now? Has honor been served? Have we satisfied the requirements yet? Precisely. Uh, But Graves, who's kind of humiliated that, you know, Kentucky rifleman, he's not being... (laughs) Right, he can't shoot the rifle. He says, I I want one more shot. Mm. And he has no expectation that he's going to hit silly. And as a matter of fact, people came along with graves with blankets because they assumed they were going to be bringing him back mm-hmm. wounded mm-hmm. to Washington. But as luck would have it, uh, he shoots and hits silly who dies in someone's arms on the dueling ground moments later. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now the, you have one Congressman who just killed another Congressman. Is this, uh, is this the only case we have of a member of Congress killing another member? Uh, for sure in Washington. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, it wow. is. Wow. Now, to me, that's an interesting story. I mean, all of it is just inherently interesting. But more interesting, perhaps, is the, the reactions. What are the reactions of other members of Congress? What are the reactions of the press and the public? And what was the uh, punishment for, in this case, the murderer on the dual grounds? Right. So there's a there's a mix of responses. Um, the Northerners, and in particular Northern Democrats, uh, Democrats generally, uh, put up a howl because not only are they 
upset that a Democrat has been killed. But boy, is that a convenient way to politic, is to howl about the barbarians on the other side and they're out to kill us. So there's a sort of political bent to it. Um, then people in Congress initially are just stunned because that doesn't happen. You know, they're, they're kind of along the lines of what we've already talked about. Like yeah. they may threaten each other and occasionally even hit each other, wave weapons at each other, beat each other, but people usually don't kill each other in they Congress. They knew that so, crossed a line. There was no way around that. Exactly. Exactly. That, that was kind of stunning. Um, and John Quincy Adams uh, writes in his diary, he describes wonderfully the sort of quiet humming and buzzing in the room as people waited to hear what happened and then the how so stunned people were that a congressman had been killed. Um, so it, it becomes a political issue. It, it surprises congressmen, but then it gets bound up with the question of dueling and Southerners and is dueling proper or not proper and what does this say about Southerners? There's a big funeral, a sort of ceremonial funeral, uh, and generally Congress goes. I think actually Supreme Court justices do not go because it's so obviously a violation of the law. Uh, there's an anti-dueling sermon which offends Southerners. Mm. So it remains, it is still highly partisan and also really sectional, both of those things at the same time. The most interesting part to me is that all of the people involved who survive walk away from it saying in one way or another to their constituents, I did what you would want me to do. Yeah. I represented you. I stood up for you. I represented your interests. And if I had humiliated myself, I would humiliate you too. And wow. Graves says that in a speech and is cheered for saying that. Uh, Wise, Henry Wise, who's the guy who started this whole yep. thing and who's a, a real frequent fighter, he gets reelected. Yeah. So uh, they're not punished, no really. No punished here. And that's fascinating to me that everyone recognizes this has crossed a line. Everyone realizes that you know these are dynamics that aren't aren't unique to these people because these people weren't you know sworn enemies of each other. It was the the system and the culture that developed this. Everyone gets this, and yet not only was there no punishment, but people walked away from it thinking, "I did my duty, and my constituents generally like it." Right, I I did my duty by my constituents. And that's the other thing to bear in mind, I know it's, it's the present it's day too. When you think about the uh, the insurrection and what people yeah. take away from it, which is this crossed a line, this was different, this was bad, and yet people leave after it thinking, but I'm okay with it. And if that line has been crossed, and my constituents are are not only unhappy with it, but in some cases celebrating it. Then we can move on to things like threatening each other, you know, with violence again. Uh, very similar situation in that way. Well, right. I mean, one of the lessons, I suppose you could say, of the Silly Graves duel, and it's certainly not the only moment this is true, is that very often people will reelect fighters. And by that, I mean people who will fight for their rights. And right. sometimes right. that means actual physical confrontation. Henry Wise, who is my most frequent fighter in the whole, all of the decades I was writing about, at one point, someone says to him something along the lines of, you know, you, you've caused five fights. You've been involved in two duels. We ought to throw you out of here. And Wise says, yeah, go ahead. Go right ahead. Because you know what's going to happen? I'm going to be reelected because my constituents put me here to do that. I'm defending their interests and I'm doing just what they want me to do, which is a kind of terrifying logic and is not entirely remote from some of what we see today. 
Yeah. Uh, in a sense, the takeaway from this is violence works that for the purposes of politicking and for supporting your cause, um, violence does work. And I think that's reinforced by what happened afterwards. You would think that after this, when everybody took notice and John, John Quincy Adams, former president, now member of the house, almost the conscience of the country in some ways. Um, and he's saying how dramatic this is. It was only a few months till there was a fist fight on the floor of the house again. It was only three years, I think, until there were the next dual challenges and four years until there was yet another duel between members of Congress. So we have a dynamic here that interestingly gets wound up with slavery in particular when the gag rule comes into effect. And I, I think many of our listeners are familiar with the gag rule, but if not, give a short summary of the gag rule and and its impact on congressional violence during that period. Sure. Um, the, the gag rule is instituted in part and ironically um, as an attempt to move some of the animosity and, and argument uh, and the possibility of actually having an impact on slavery from the floor of Congress. And um, the House uh, has a particularly useful and deployed version of a gag rule in play. And essentially, it says that um, anti-slavery petitions are just tabled. They're just removed. You can't discuss that on the floor. Now, the idea, of course, as I just said, is, okay, we're just going to take that and move it off the floor because whenever we talk about slavery, things get really ugly really fast. And at this period in time, we're looking at the late 1830s, the early 1840s, um, the, the problem of slavery rises and falls throughout this period, but certainly it's, it's a major issue at this moment. So there's a logic to their coming forward and, and basically saying, let's just not talk about it, which is alarming in its own right, but in that's the what thinking, they try and do. And, and let me make sure I understand the thinking here from the people supporting the gag rule most vociferously. These were people who were saying it's, it's best not to talk about it because if we talk about it, it will force a confrontation and it will force us towards something. Maybe they didn't use the word civil war and secession yet, but they were definitely thinking if we do talk about it, that's a very bad thing. So let's just yes. roll the dice and see what happens if we prevent members of Congress from speaking freely, which is a remarkable thing. It is. So, so yes, if we confront that, it's going to be really bad. So let's not talk about it in Congress. Some people argue, you know, well, this is something for the South to deal with. North, The North has no issue dealing with this. It's a Southern problem. And there's a variety of different arguments that people use. But yeah, the, the logic of it is basically it's, it's potentially union breaking. And the union is still newish in this period. So it's not as though the idea of it dissolving is so unheard of. And so they, yeah, they, oddly enough, that's the logic here is let's just not talk about it. And although it's supposed to be preventing hostility, in the end, it does the opposite. And those end up, those years being, end up being among the most violent in Congress because you have Northerners uh, being silenced. You have people like John Quincy Adams, who really raises a ruckus over this issue. He's anti-slavery. Uh, and he knows the rules of the House. He is, as you said, a former president who goes back to Congress, not the Senate, but the House after his presidency. He's a parliamentarian genius. So he's using this to help fight slavery and to expose 
some of the things that, that you're just suggesting here. What do you mean? Let's not talk about it. Really? Is that how we're going to deal with this? So you end up again and again and again, either with anti-slavery people trying to talk about it and there's some kind of ruckus or fight or threat or with Southerners just not liking the way a conversation goes and again, ending up being threatening or, or violent in some way. In one way or another, it causes violence. And in part, that's because some members of Congress feel and rightly so, they are being silenced, and in silencing them, their constituents are not getting their due rights of representation. Right. Now, what's really interesting about this is um, John Quincy Adams may be anti-slavery, but he really understood that if he stood up and said, "Let's slavery is bad, and thus we need to end the gag rule, he would probably not get as rip-roaring a response as if he stood up and said, the gag rule is violating your fundamental rights to mm -hmm. freedom of debate and representation on the floor. So right. Adams brilliantly says, let's just make this about their rights. Let's not even talk about slavery. But if people get riled up about their rights being violated, that's going to be big. And that's precisely what happens. That's such an interesting dynamic, especially revolving around JQA, because here's a guy who heretofore had not been uh, a firebrand on the issue of slavery. He was not using his position in the house every time to do these, you know, fiery speeches, but the gag rule itself spurred him to do so, which in turn spurred greater recognition of what, what they were saying were their rights being trampled and the constituents not being represented, which in turn led Southerners to issue death threats. And suddenly this former president who is sacrosanct in in person that is in in his body no one is attacking him on the floor of the house or threatening him in person often but he's getting letters telling him that he's going to be hurried into eternity or oh death threats yeah yeah something that given the the recent incident between Paul Gosar and AOC came to mind this incident where John Quincy Adams in this era had received a drawing with a uh, rifle ball being drawn going into his head along with the phrase, uh, your days are numbered. Well, you know, there's a there's an interesting story there about someone who was actually in many ways taking the high road using parliamentary procedure in order to talk about the rights and duties of a representative. And what does that do? That brings about very explicit death threats. Right. And, but he can do that, and, and he is, in a sense, the only person who can do that in that way because he's the son of a founder, he's a former president, he's renowned, and he's elderly. And for all of those reasons, you don't confront John Quincy Adams that way. And you even occasionally have members of Congress confront him and then say something along the lines of, if you weren't who you are, you would feel more than the power of my words. So they're like often Southerners with their fists clenched. They're like, man, <laughs> I would like to do something to you, John Quincy Adams, but I can't because of who you are. So he knows he has that advantage and he uses it for all it's worth. Another anti-slavery member of Congress who takes another approach to this during the gag rule years is a fellow from Ohio named Joshua Giddings. And Giddings is really aggressive anti-slavery mm -hmm. uh, advocate, mm -hmm. abolitionist. And but he's a big guy physically, and he doesn't, he's not scared of a fight. So what he does in this period, and actually even after it, he'll say something deliberately provocative about slavery or the South, knowing 
that it's going to get some Southerner red-faced and running at him with a weapon, which often it does. And he then essentially steps aside and says to the press, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the barbaric South. And I, I talk about him as a kind of abolitionist Toreador because he's doing things to deliberately make Southerners rage and then pointing to them and saying, look at them. Look at who they are. Really? The, the, these, this is who they are. We need to recognize them for what they are and the institution that they're protecting for what it is. So you, in a sense, being an abolitionist in this period is really dangerous. The people who do it effectively kind of have a, a strategy and it's, it's brute force for Giddings. It's parliamentary knowledge to John Quincy Adams. There's a senator uh, from New Hampshire. He uses humor to deflate Southerners when they start to clench their fists. It's really dangerous to do what these men are doing, but they all have a way to, if not prevent danger, at least move away from it and discourage it. And it gets wound up. There, there's so many different factors here, you know, trying to look at it as a political scientist, my head spins because you've got personalities, you've got the nature of the polity being represented by each representative or Senator. You've got the North South cultural dynamic, which is related to, but not perfectly correlated with the slavery issue. You've got the doe face Democrats up North. You've got the issues of personal, if you will, strength, so you can have somebody like the Ohio representative who actually feels physically capable of handling a punch coming at him, whereas some other members just don't, they're not fighters. You put all that together and it leads to such interesting characters in this period that we don't, we don't appreciate, like the man who would become president, Franklin Pierce. And I say Pierce with hesitation because maybe you can clarify this for me. I have heard that he got the nickname Purse. And some sources say that he actually did pronounce his name that way. Other sources say, no, that's probably just a conflation of the, the fact that he, he got nicknamed that and people wanted to think he said that. Do you know if that's true or not? Because I've been saying Franklin Pierce my whole life and I'll be really embarrassed if I'm wrong. And I, and I do too, just because it's so, you know, such a habit, I kind of can't say anything else. What I have heard is that there's a poem written with him in it and mm. the word that rhymes with his name suggests that it's pronounced purse. Interesting. So it, that very well may be. I, I don't have the definitive answer, but um, no. and I don't have the poem at at the ready here. But well, um, I think we'll have that, to go That's with good Pierce. evidence. We'll have to go with Pierce. If nothing else, in Mash, it was Hawkeye Pierce, not Hawkeye Purse. <laughs> exactly. So I think we have to stick with that. Um, during this time, uh, you know, after that obviously lethal duel between Silly and Graves, and now after the gag rule and the the ramping up of tensions as, as we're building towards what we know ultimately is secession and civil war. Uh, the violence between members of Congress is, is still going on with fisticuffs and things, both within the chamber, uh, in committee rooms, on the steps of the Capitol, the portico, but also between members of Congress and the press. And this is something that I found fascinating and I had not really studied on until I read some of your work that the papers were really important here because the government didn't even have a printing office until 1861. So what was going on in the halls of the Congress was being put out mostly by papers that 
generally discounted the violence and didn't want to make members of Congress seem more violent than they were in most cases. But sometimes that led to members of Congress not liking being what was written about them and challenging members of the press to fights. Talk about that dynamic and how that grew into and through the 1850s. Right. Well, and absolutely um, makes perfect sense that in any kind of democratic mode of government, the press is vital. And for a while in Washington, there's a very small uh, press cartel. There's a very small number of reporters, as you suggest. Um, Many of them are affiliated, actually, for the most part, they're affiliated with a handful of local newspapers. And they report on Congress for the newspaper and alongside that, put out a version of the congressional record. It's not, I suppose, formally a government document, but it serves that way. And they, for a while, it's sort of as though they're in league with members of Congress who will, they'll sometimes give copies of what they've made of speeches to congressmen. Congressmen get to read them and correct them and give them back to the printers. So they're, they're sort of cooperating in a sense. Um, Sometimes probably for the sake of reality and, and, and being accurate sometimes, Mm -hmm. uh, equally important to smooth over things that would make Congress look bad. Uh, And these printers and reporters do this in part because um, they're the same party as some of the members of Congress, so they're serving their party. Uh, And in part because they're afraid of what happens if they displease a member of Congress. Because uh, more than once, there's a reporter who does something that displeases a member of Congress and the member of Congress beats him. And because uh, reporters were seen as socially inferior to members of Congress, and and that's honor culture and dueling culture, you only duel your equal and you only fight your equal, um, that you would never challenge a reporter to a duel or an editor to a duel. You you beat him. You cane him in one way or another. That's the behavior you use for one of your inferiors. So that happens sometimes within the bounds of the Capitol. It happens sometimes out on the streets of Washington. Um, The one instance that I discovered that really shows that there are two sides to those kinds of fight uh, fights is that you have uh, a, a congressman who gets really angry at the way two particular reporters are reporting him. And he essentially stands up in Congress and threatens them to a degree that both men arm themselves because now they're afraid that they're going to get beaten in some way. And I think one has a, a cane, I think, one or a gun, and the other has what he calls a big stick, which I think is a cane. But they come to Congress every day with weapons, and they're, they. I think one of them says that this fellow had a, quote, alarming physique, the congressman. Um, and they can't really do much except protect the, their persons, except they stop reporting him. They just stop putting what he says in their reports. And he's, in the he's, end— he's, he's, he's canceled. This is cancel culture, Julian. Ex- <laughs> oh, my gosh. It is cancel culture. He's canceled. He's he's pretty much canceled. So what did that and do? How did uh, how did he react to that? He apologizes. What? <laughs> he backs away. It actually worked. It, it works. It works. I mean, it, he can't. He has to be visible. He has to be visible for his own reputation, for his constituents, for his honor, for his power, for his influence. So yeah, he ultimately apologizes. That is a is a fascinating story, and I mean, with this dynamic of of the press and their, in some cases, their hesitation to talk about members of Congress, or at least their interaction with members. There's another dynamic involving the the press and communications back to the public. And yes, I'm I'm building up to another parallel to the modern day here. 
This one is in the late 1840s, the introduction of the telegraph, getting news about fights on the floor of Congress or other incidents uh, back to the constituents. And then the 1850s, it's basically everywhere, um, such that there could be another duel. This one did not lead to a death, but a duel between Thomas Hart Benton, um, who, you know, been around everybody in Washington for for decades, uh, the kind of man my mom used to call a character, um, <laughs> dueling with somebody oddly in his own party, um, Henry Foote from Mississippi, who someone my mom would call a rapscallion. Um, these people had the duel, and unlike the duel from just five or six years earlier, everybody knows about it nationwide really quickly, and and it has a different character as a result. And I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about that dynamic of now you're not just playing to each other in Congress. You're not just playing to the power brokers, but now it really is becoming a performative act uh, being done for your constituents, if not primarily, at least in a major way. Right. So, so because of technology and which increases the power of the press, things which before were partly powerful just because of the fact that they were threatening or violent, now you have to assume that the nation is going to see them in a different way more quickly and more of the nation than ever before, which doesn't mean they're fake, but it does add a performative element to it. Now, the the um, confrontation between Benton and Foote actually isn't really a duel. It's it's just more of a physical confrontation. A duel... Oh, to they be never a duel, get, it has to be very They never get to formal. a dueling ground. They just, no. even though Benton had been a dueler, they take it out in other ways. They take it out in the Senate chamber. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So there, and essentially by this point, this has to do with the compromise of 1850 and it has to do with the fate of slavery. And obviously the conversation is really heated and foot uh, in one way or another has been smacking at Benton, who I think he thinks is, is too easy uh, on the, future of slavery and where it's going to spread and what the compromise is going to look like. Um, and so we, uh, ultimately, Benton loses patience, loses his temper and shoves his desk and knocks over his chair and rushes at Foote, who knew already that he was pushing the envelope. So he came armed. And when Benton lunges at him, Foote pulls a pistol and aims it at Benton. Ah. Uh. Now, typically, when you have these kinds of moments, like confrontation moments, whether it's someone waving a weapon or some two men with fists approaching each other, um, the same thing happens. And you can read about it. I discovered this in um, committee reports. Uh, it's the only place I could find that reported. Wow. Some people will rush to the spot and try and pull the people apart or, in this case, try and take Foot's gun away. Yeah. Some people will jump up on their desks and chairs just to get a good look. <laughs> just, to, so, just to be a spectator. Exactly. Like, oh. ooh, what's going on? The gallery so had happens. a great view of these. Yes. So so there is a, a typical stampede. Someone pulls the gun away from foot. Um, the, the matter is settled. Uh, they sit down. And as often happens in the case of fights of various sorts, they're just going to go back to work. Uh, although Benton isn't very pleased about that. But at this moment, someone stands up, actually, a um, New Hampshire congressman. Uh, stands up, New Hampshire senator, uh, and says, I feel the need to say something at this point. I, I hope you all realize that because of the telegraph, hmm. in 45 minutes, the entire nation is going to be reading that we're 
in gore, sort of slaughtering each other in mm -hmm. bloody violence in the Senate. And we won't be able to do anything about that. Yeah. And he goes on to say something which is actually really significant nowadays, too. He says, when you have that kind of moment, you need to have a committee put in action, even just for the reason that it shows the nation that Congress is taking the matter in hand. Right. That whatever happened crossed a line, and Congress is saying it crossed a line, and something will happen. Mm -hmm. He stands up and says that, and there, there is indeed then an investigative committee that's created. But what, what is the result of this? Invest yes, there's a good thing that there's a committee investigating it, but there's an important lesson for today in terms of you know reinforcing rules or correcting behavior that could go down a dark road. Um, what happens from this committee and what is the, the punishment and the remediation Right. Well, there isn't really punishment. Oops. <laughs> right. Oops yeah, is what well, is huh? true. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. And I, I've been thinking about this recently, and I wrote about it recently regarding our, our current Congress, because I've talked a lot and thought a lot about the importance of having not just a committee investigating what happened on January 6th and the days leading up to it, but the importance of it being public. And one of the points I make is that I don't think having that committee is going to instantly poof correct everything and everyone will fall in line and everyone will shake hands mm -hmm. and say, oh, you know, you're right. We were out of control. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't think anyone expects that. But I think the lack of that kind of committee and the lack of a public committee will do precisely what this fellow from the senator from New Hampshire says. It will suggest maybe there wasn't a line crossed. Maybe what happened is okay. Government isn't really responding. Right, There's right. no accountability. So it's not that I think the committee will do something amazing, but I think the absence of it can really cause a lot of damage. Absolutely. Let's, um, let's move forward a bit to the, the most violent Congress in history, the, the bloody 34th from what, December 1855 um, till, till late 1857. So this is a time when obviously um, the tensions are heating up uh, involving slavery. You've had some other incidents that we don't need to get into, but it's during this window, I think, that we have the story that if anybody knows an incident about violence within Congress itself, they probably know about the caning of Charles Sumner. But the story is a little more interesting when you have this context of the history of congressional violence, isn't it? Because you have some unwritten rules of congressional combat and Sumner's assailant violates them and basically takes those norms and, and throws them out the window. So relate the story for those who haven't heard it, the story of the, the caning of Sumner and then how it is that Preston Brooks actually violated those norms in, in the act of doing so. Right. And and that point in and of itself, before I start, is worth noting, which is if you're going to, kind of like with dueling, if you're going to potentially kill each other, there have to be a lot of rules. That The, the same issue goes here, that if you're going to have fighting that potentially is going to be dangerous, there have to be norms and understandings of how that's supposed to proceed. And, and so an example of that is if you're going to personally insult a member of Congress, he has to be in his seat. So he has the right to respond. And when that happens and the person isn't in their seat, the person who does that is reprimanded. So there are any number of rules that are seen as promoting civil fighting, you know, fighting that seems fair. It, ultimately, it's about what appears to be fair fighting. 
in the case of the caning of Charles Sumner, abolitionist Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner, he uh, is itching to make uh, a speech in Congress attacking the slave power, which is what it would have been called at the time. And he decides to speak on the issue of Kansas. And this is the moment when the slavery fate of Kansas and Nebraska is under debate. Will they be slave states or not? And he stands up and he gives a rip-roaring, really aggressive speech in which he attacks the South and he attacks a a number of Southern senators, specifically men who've been attacking him for a while. It's It's a blockbuster of a speech. But it because he's what would have been known as not a fighting man in congress in this period they would break people down into fighting men and non-combatants hmm. Th- those are their terms so sumner is decidedly a non-combatant if you're a fighting man you can do that sort of thing because it's understood you'll defend your words right. potentially right. with force sumner isn't so that scene is crossing one line and you have people like Stephen Douglas mumbling in the background. He's asking to get kicked like a dog, like that, what can happen here, but that someone's going to have to physically confront him. So what happens is Preston Brooks of South Carolina, um, acting on behalf of his state and uh, a kinsman of his who is insulted in the speech, he waits actually and reads the speech in the paper to confirm that what he thinks happened, happened, and it's in the paper. And then goes into the Senate and confronts Sumner and essentially says, you've insulted my kinsmen, you've insulted the South, uh, and canes him violently with his cane uh, to the point that the cane ultimately breaks and Sumner is left in a bloody heap on the floor. Why didn't Sumner uh, at least try to get away during this? uh, Or why? perhaps I should put it this way. Why was he unable to get away during this? Well, that's one of the unfortunate things about this is that the um, Senate desks are bolted to the floor. So Sumner can't push the desk away and it's not so easy for him to move the chair out of the way. So he's a little bit pinned down. He tries so hard to, to get away and respond. He pulls the bolted desk out of the floor, Yeah, but he really can't get away. Um, Preston Brooks, uh, who's a representative, I should add, has a friend with him who's keeping anyone who might think about interfering out of the way because this is seen as a fair fight. Sumner violated the honor of the South, and now you have a Southerner who's doing what you do with one of your inferiors. You cane him. But it's obviously a remarkably violent incident that has national repercussions. But the things that are worth noting, number one, is that most people think of it as the only violent incident in Congress. And that's not obviously not true. It's part of a string, even in just in this time period, there's a string of violent incidents before it. So it's not seen as horrible only because it's violent. It's seen as horrible because it is establishing a pattern and because a lot of norms were violated to the degree that people really did in the end feel that, as they said in the North, that the South was beating the North into submission. One of the things Brooks does that is not what you should have done when you're when you're and they actually say this at some point in the record, if you're planning a deliberate attack on someone as opposed to responding to their speech on the floor and running at them, right. you're not supposed to do that in the chamber. If, if you're planning a deliberate attack on someone, that should be on the Capitol grounds or that should be in the streets. Mm-hmm. And Preston Brooks actually lurks outside the Capitol for a few days. He tries it. Waiting. Right. He tries to get him outside where it's exactly according to the rules. But instead of sticking to the rules and just waiting one more day, he says, oh, screw it. I'm going in the right. chamber. 
Right. He, he, he tries to do what would have been proper. He ultimately loses his patient and says, fine, I'm just going to confront him in the Senate. But you can see why doing that kind of act in the Senate, what, what deep meaning that has, because it's Sumner in his representative capacity in the Senate and a member of Congress beating him to the ground. I mean, in many ways, it literally is the, the, the South beating the North into submission. And I read at some point um, Sumner's letters and some of the people who wrote to him after this, the, the, the personal anguish that a lot of people felt um, or school children who understood that, that something about this was exceedingly wrong and it made them cry. I mean, the, the emotional response to this would be hard to exaggerate. And, and, and again, that's, that's why these things are better done outside. And I think part of it also uh, is that you, you mentioned that for Brooks and for his compatriot who was there keeping people away, they may have thought that this was a, a fair fight because of something Sumner had said that was so egregious. But by the unwritten rules, it was far from a fair fight. You have an unarmed man sitting at his desk. He's trapped in his desk. And as he's leveling these blows, Preston Brooks clearly sees that he is trapped. And he did not issue a, a warning. And right. usually in these fights, there's the mouthing off, the performative you know, taunting that happens first, which is, right. you know, you're going to have to eat those words or, right. you know. <laughs> You're, you, you, you'd rather not see, you know, what my fists are going to do if you keep that up. There's something that's said. And in this case, he simply went in, read to him his words, and then started attacking him. There was no warning that he was about to use violence on him until it happened. Right. And what's fascinating about that is the committee report. So again, there's an investigative committee and they have lots of witnesses and it, not surprisingly, there, there isn't one set response uh, as to what the committee thinks should happen or not. But one of the things that um, some members of the committee say about Brooks is not that, you know, what a horrible thing you shouldn't have beaten him. What they focus on is you should have given him a warning so that he could arm himself or bring armed friends. That wasn't fair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about the act. And the report then says, that wasn't really a fair fight. We really need to focus on that. I mean, it really, on the one hand, shows you what a different time sure. this was, but also shows you if you really are threatening people with very harmful violence, why rules become very important. Right. Well, there, there are three, there, there are many different consequences of this dramatic act, but we'll focus on three here quickly. One is obviously for Sumner himself. He is so injured that he can't even come back to work for three years. And he does have permanent injuries as a result. He does not die, um, but th this is not a minor incident. This is not a fist fight where somebody has, you know, a jaw left hurting. Um, he's, he's in bad shape, but he's actually not too unhappy with the incident. Even as he's being dragged off bloody, he's hoping that this will serve the anti-slavery cause. So he, he was not <laughs> he was not physically comfortable with the result, but I think politically he was comfortable with the fact that this was going to lead to the second main consequence, which is a dramatic reaction from Northerners and even from some people previously uh, a bit, I don't know, not necessarily happy with slavery, but certainly uh, less willing to confront uh, the South. Some This turned some people's opinion, didn't it? Well, certainly it, it had an impact. And partly, I think, because of the gut level 
impact um, and in every sense of that word of this happening. It it wasn't rhetoric. It wasn't words being exchanged. It was it was an act of submission, south against north. So yeah, it had a big impact at the time. It it becomes truly a national issue. As you suggest, Sumner ends up being out of the Senate for a number of years, but he ultimately comes back. And he does, as much as he's really grievously wounded, he understands that it could be politically useful. And indeed, you see Southerners at various points after the caning of Sumner say to each other sometimes, you know, whatever you do, just don't smack this person around or he's going to go whining around the nation like Mm -hmm. Sumner did and it's not going to make us look Mm -hmm. good. So Southerners even realize in their way that there's a power to that, that that you grant the person being attacked. Right. The the other consequence I want to talk about is the consequence for Brooks himself. I mean, here's somebody who has violated the unwritten rules and has committed major assault um, today, you know, perhaps could even be considered attempted murder. Um, This is the kind of thing that the House, regardless of party, regardless of uh, South versus North dynamics, the House absolutely has to come together and immediately expel him and make clear that this isn't okay. So what did they do? Well, there's certainly a debate in Congress. Um, <laughs> so that's something. There is a debate. It's a fiery debate. Uh, when Brooks is, knows that this is going to happen, he says, like, this is this is going to be something. So let's just wait and see what happens here. So there's a fiery debate. He ultimately uh, isn't expelled, but he leaves. He resigns and goes home, um, as does uh, the fellow who was keeping people away, right. Lawrence Kitt from South Carolina. They resign. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't want to be humiliated with whatever's going to happen in Congress. They, they fight their way out of it, and then they go home. And they're reelected. Oh. And, and Brooks is celebrated in the South. Yeah. Brooks is sent celebratory canes. And I, I got my um, PhD at UVA, and so I kind of hang my head when I say that UVA sent Preston Brooks a cane uh, that said on it, essentially on the on the head of it, hit him again and had an image of a of a head being smacked by a cane. So to Southerners, this was someone really standing up for the honor and rights and interests of the South. And they cheered it on. Mm -hmm. What I was shocked by with the, the timing of this is the presidential election of 1856. Uh, James Buchanan is elected president. He's he's the Democrat. But the Republicans, who were not much of a party yet, did remarkably well and got something like a third of the electoral vote. And it brings in a whole bunch of characters who've learned from this. Wait a minute. The, the violence over the last 20 years on Capitol Hill in and around Congress is intimately connected to Southerners' belief that they can use their dueling code and their willingness to threaten violence against anti-slavery Northerners in particular, but even some moderately uh, less pro-slavery Democrats, they can use this as a weapon and we just don't fight back. We need to start fighting back. And talk a little bit about that dynamic, that going into the the last administration before the Civil War, that the last couple of years of the Buchanan administration actually see Republicans acting as a group 
to fight back against Southerners on the floor in a way that they hadn't done before. Right. And and absolutely. Um, the Republican Party at this point is brand new. Uh, it rises in part because of all of the things we're talking about here. Uh, it is a definitively northern anti-slavery party, which has not existed before. Not everyone in it is an abolitionist. Some of them are against slavery because right, they want right. the West to be free soil. So they're not all flaming abolitionists, but they are anti-slavery. And w- what's striking about it is that I've talked before, I've mentioned before about the idea of the slave power, which was a, a a phrase that they used again and again and again in the North about there's a slave power that's dominating the government, which in a sense was true. Republican members of Congress, many of them run on the idea that they are going to, quote unquote, fight the slave power. Now, before I'd written the book, I didn't take that as literally as I think it ultimately was intended. But for at least some of these members of Congress, they meant that. They meant that they were now going to go and fight the slave power. And again and again, you see on the floor, members of Congress, when when someone tries to humiliate them or silence them, again and again, Northerners will rise to their feet, Northern these Republicans, and say, we're a new kind of congressman. We're a different kind of person here, different kind of Northerner. You're not going to be able to do what you've done in the past. Things Mm. are changing. And uh, as you can imagine that really changes the dynamics of what's going on in Congress. I think it, I think it does because you mentioned earlier that the important part of this from the bullying perspective, which in this case was a lot of these Southern representatives in particular was, was the threat. What mattered was the threat more than the act. And now the threat doesn't have quite the punch pardon my phrasing, that it did <laughs> in, in earlier decades. Um, and it leads to a very different case when uh, the, the one I remember the most was the the very colorful, I mean, really just a, a, a gang fight in February of 1858 when a radical Republican and a uh, equally radical Southern Democrat uh, get into it. And suddenly there is a mass group of Republicans and affiliated uh, party members who are running over the desks, jumping to join in the fray instead of the old thing where they used to sit back or spectate. That's that's an interesting change in the behavior. And of course, coming at a time of 1858, when we're getting awfully close to it, moving from the halls of Congress to uh, to battlefields in the country itself. Well, I will say there had been big physical brawls before. I would say most congresses have mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. and that's a big, you know, 20, 30 congressmen running at each other and hitting at each other. So that element isn't necessarily new in 1858. But what you do have is a group of armed Southerners and a group of armed Northerners running at each other in the House in the space in front of the Speaker's chair. Ah, okay. That is a, is a, is a new thing. Right. That's a different thing. It, it literally, there's a reporter that basically says that kind of looks like a war, right? That kind of looks like honest to goodness combat. Now, the fact of the matter is, as we've been suggesting all along, no one's trying to kill anybody. And there's a lot of punching and there's a lot of um, hair pulling mm-hmm. and coat ripping in yeah. one way or another. Um, and it ends and people sort of go back to their seats, which is what they normally do yeah. after these fights. So in the end, there's not a lot of violence, but the the fact that it happened in that way and the 
symbolism and meaning of that, people at the time, uh, and as a matter of fact, the same person who says it looked like a war, he says something along the lines of, now I know that, that in the end, everyone went back to their seat and we just moved on, but that really doesn't bode well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and by 1860, by the next election year, I think I think I heard you, and I'm, pardon me if I'm putting words in your mouth here, but I think I heard you say this in uh, another uh, event, which is you noted that Congress wasn't really doing much. And the words you used really echoed a lot of what we hear about Congress today. Uh, you pointed out, one, that the violence was really reflecting a core issue of Congress, which is that they really weren't able to legislate much, at least on the important issues of the day. And secondly, that distrust of Congress, public opinion of Congress was at an all-time high. Um, those dynamics don't sound strange to anybody today because that's how you would define Congress now in light of some uh, obviously different triggers, but similar behaviors and dynamics coming from those triggers. Right. And and an important element of this goes back to what we were talking about with the telegraph and the press. By the time you get to the late 1850s before the, the Civil War, you have a whole bunch of reporters in Washington and no one really knows who they are and they're sitting all over the place, not just in the gallery, the reporter's gallery. Um, and so what you have is people who are not really in league with members of Congress to make things look a certain way, and they're very willing to report and even make up violence. So the public is getting, the, the Telegraph is sending news around the country with ever-increasing speed, and the press, unfortunately, at this peak period, uh, is revealing the violence and, and even making up violence. I mean, when I was working on my book, I had to uh, prove to myself that some of the violence was real by finding it in more than one source. Ooh, because hard. there are a couple things that happened. I still don't know if they happened. I found them in one, like in a newspaper, but if I couldn't find it someplace else, right. I'm not sure if Especially it happened. difficult when a lot of the eyewitnesses were trying to downplay the violence because it made their team look bad. Right. Downplay it or, um, or, or play it up to suggest that their person is behaving particularly nobly. Right. Uh, in one way or another, there's a lot of reasons to create what we would now call fake news for the sake of party politics. What's striking to me about that is, you know, I, I wrote about these fights. It took me years to find the violence because so much of it was essentially censored out of the press. Ultimately, I knew what to look for and I knew how to find it. But I could only find that violence by sitting at my desk with a bunch of databases open, searching and digging and piecing things together. And I, I think to myself, I still think to myself, I was having a hard time figuring out what happened with the benefit of all of these databases and mm -hmm. all the time in the world to figure mm -hmm. this out. Imagine if you're reading a newspaper in 1858 mm. and trying to figure out what happened. I mean, right. it really is striking. Well, the especially degree to which with the rush to judgment that some of these yeah. newspapers had where you would be sitting in, you know, Bloomington, Illinois or in Wilmington, Delaware, and you'd be getting the newspaper that would say something like Thomas Hart Benton dead, you know, killed on the floor right. of the house when in fact right. nothing of the sort happened. Right. Right. There's a there's a there's a newspaper that I found and they were very excited about the Telegraph, which obviously today social media is serving that same function. Um, people were very excited that the Telegraph was new and it spread news fast and wasn't that exciting. Sometimes on the front pages of newspaper, you would see a column and at the top of it, it would say telegraphic. Right. Oh, this is the telegraphic news. And at, on at least one occasion, the telegraphic news was first 
that there had been a duel and then a little later <laughs> that uh, actually someone had been killed and then a little later that it actually had never happened. <laughs> yeah, fake news indeed. <laughs> but you're right. The the parallel to social media is the one you know I was interested in coming back to kind of to, to help us bring this forward to what we can learn in uh, for the present day is the the technology is new and and its reach is is different but it is not it really is not qualitatively different because you have the dynamic of people reading something believing what they want to believe based on either previous misinformation or uh, their own preconceived notions and that dynamic can actually coincide with the lack of faith in institutions, as was happening in Congress in the 1850s. And as we're seeing in polls about Congress now, you pull together all these factors that that we've woven in, together in this conversation. I hate to say it, but it doesn't seem to bode well for the possibility of violence in Congress coming back in a way that has not been common since the 1840s and 50s. So interestingly, social media you know, one of the things that I've thought about a lot, obviously, have, being writing about the Telegraph and watching the last few years of politics is part of the dynamic that's very similar is speed. So one of the things that social media mm -hmm. does that the Telegraph did is that there's not a lot of wiggle room. Things just get sent out. There isn't a lot of spin control about what gets sent out. And that sends things into disarray. And certainly that's some of what's happening now. The other thing that's interesting about what's happening now, which also is in line with the telegraph, telegraph was a new technology and people didn't ultimately yet understand what that meant for politics and social media too. I mean, it's been around for a while, but the fact of the matter is we see all the time, right? AOC or former president Trump finding ways to use it and people standing back and saying, ooh, look at that. Like, that's interesting. We haven't quite seen that before. It, it's a new enough that it isn't really fully um, controlled or understood. It, it, it's still something that people are figuring out the new power of. And if you think about the fact that ultimately politics is a conversation of sorts between the people and the people who are given power, who, who they give power to. So you, the, that, that's an ongoing conversation about power. You give power to people. They owe you an explanation of what it is they're doing with mm -hmm. that power. You are supposed to have the power to shape whether they return to Congress or not. It's an ongoing conversation. That's democracy. But any technology that changes that conversation can't help but change democracy as well. And I think that's part of what happened with the Telegraph, and I think that's definitely part of what's happening now with social media, is that the conversation of power is different, and we're still figuring out the dynamics of that. And at this particular moment, with the issues at stake and the polarization, that's a dangerous place to be. And it does introduce one slightly new dynamic, which is back in the day, you could have a friendly newspaper man and, and have something telegraphed to your constituents that said basically what you wanted it to say. But you did not have a personal Twitter account that you could send out to hundreds of thousands or even millions of people uh, saying exactly what you want to say in terms of spin, but also in the Paul Gosar example, um, you know, having a simulation of violence against one of your colleagues. That, right. that kind of direct communication could 
in theory, bring out the best of us as members of Congress, but in some cases appears to bring out the worst of us. And Absolutely. It speaks to that dynamic of congressional violence or threats of violence like that. They, they reflect the underlying societal movements. In, in the case of the 1850s, the underlying societal movement of uh, finally addressing the national scourge of slavery, which, which took a civil war. But it's also that the violence in Congress drove some of that. It's not just a reflection. Right. It's got a, a two-way effect. Right. And that's the dynamic that I wonder about now is, is how much of what we're seeing in terms of the increasing threats of violence in and around Capitol Hill how much it how much of it to you from looking at the history of this how much of it to you looks like it's reflecting the deeper tensions in our society and how much is that actually driving some of those tensions well i think along the same lines as the earlier period that i've written about i think it's both i i think it's easy to look at tweets um, and other things and, and dismiss them as, you know, well, it's just, it's words, it's a joke, you know, whatever it is you're going to use to explain it away. But the fact of the matter is, once you put that out into the world in one way or another, it normalizes it. It puts that into the national Absolutely. vocabulary of politics. And that matters a lot. So I, I think sometimes, um, in the same way that I think sometimes people have a little bit too much faith in the idea that nothing can bring down American democracy. Well, some things can, and we better stand up and act on it. I think the same thing is true with rhetoric and posing and, and the many ways in which there's threats of violence. I don't think it's a mere anything. I think those things, those kinds of threats, as I've just, we, we've just talked for an hour or so about the ways in which that shaped the antebellum Congress, they end up shaping power and, and how it's used and what the American public thinks of it and how they act and how what they expect of their members of Congress. It's it's a big web of interaction, the, the interaction of political power. And words and cartoons and animation, as easy as it, it is to dismiss them, really can shape the dynamics of that debate. And it's, it's one thing to be a cartoon, of course, uh, and another thing to be an actual incident of physical violence. And thankfully, I think we can say we've had relatively few of those in the last century. I do remember when I, when I was a kid and first becoming politically aware, there was some incident, and I'm sure I'll get the details wrong through the mists of history, but sometime <laughs> in the 1980s, perhaps, of uh, Bob Dornan, a representative in California who confronted a, a Democrat, I believe, on the House floor. And either put his hands on his neck or grabbed his tie and pulled it yeah. and said something threatening. And my memory of it is dim, but what I recall of it was that the house speaker at the time, probably Tip O'Neill, um, basically said something like, don't do that here. Just take it out on the street or something like that. Which is exactly what someone would have said in 1850. Exactly. It, <laughs> history, history does echo quite a bit here. Yeah. But that, the reason that that stands out in my mind is because, honestly, you know, I've heard stories in the past decade, maybe, of heated discussions in cloakrooms and out in the hallway of somebody yelling at somebody and getting them up against a wall. I mean, Lyndon Johnson did that as a matter of practice, but other members doing it in pure anger, not as a negotiating tactic. I'm sure that's happened, but that that incident to me stands out because it is so relatively rare now, given the fact that you have this Paul Gosar cartoon. And given the fact that you have the societal tensions ramping up 
And given the fact that you have the electoral incentives, much like they were in the 1840s and 50s, to celebrate the fighters uh, in many districts, it I hate to say it, but it seems to me like violence between members of Congress, including some who very much publicly like to be carrying guns everywhere they go, we can't rule that out in the near future, can we? Well, I think... Um... So this will sound very academic of me. Um, I, I think we're at a moment of what I like to call extreme contingency, which means we really can't predict where we're going. And of course, that's always true. And as a historian, that's one of the important things about doing history, writing history, is to understand that the people you're writing about don't know what's coming next necessarily. But at this given moment, there's a lot of ways in which we could move as a nation that are going to be pretty extreme. And for that very reason, I think it's hard to rule things out. I think we have to be aware and alert of what might happen. I think we have to be willing to speak out against things that we don't think should happen. I think there are still, and, and we're talking about one now, there are still lines mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that can be crossed and that matter. But again, this gets us back to something we said before. What matters in part is how we respond to them. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a big part of this, and there's no easy equation for that, right. but that's vitally important, and it's it's part of why the January 6th hearings, I feel really strongly that they need to be public. Yes. Yeah. True. Despite the fact that I know people will watch it uh, on the right and will say, you know, they're, they're um, acting, whatever it is that pe some people might dismiss, mm -hmm. it's so important for people to see it yeah. and, and be able to absorb that and, and think about it. Uh, so, and I, I can see sort of in a general sort of way, it looks as though that's the plan, but I, I think that's vitally important. I would think of it this way is the, the public hearings and the, the, the public discussions won't necessarily solve the underlying problems, but it's almost impossible to solve the underlying problems without it. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, um, another thing that, that is pretty central, uh, to democratic government generally is accountability. Right. It's the fact that the right. people who have power are accountable mm -hmm. for what they do with it. Right. And if you have people attack the U.S. Capitol to overturn an election, mm -hmm. if there are any members of Congress that are involved in that, there needs to be accountability. Mm -hmm. If there's no accountability, then there's no force that can stop people using power however they see fit. Accountability is is part of how the government, part of how the American people can trust the government, that there are things that we all agree on that should be happening. And there are things we all agree on that shouldn't be happening. And that there are processes that you can call into motion that can draw those kinds of lines. And that becomes very important, regardless of what happens after the line is drawn. Absolutely. And I, I tell you, Joanne, I want to be optimistic, but, you know, based on this history we've talked about when it comes to accountability, you know, when, when you have a member of Congress killing another member and there is not punishment taken in a case like that, I know, you know, obviously there was a code behind it and a lot of culture going on, but wow, that, that is a, a, a dark moment for accountability for members of Congress being involved in violence in and around the Capitol. And I, I hope to be proven wrong on this. Yes. Well, uh, here is what I will say, uh, and it's true in my book, and we see it in a variety of different ways now. Something that's really worth remembering is that regardless of what people in power are doing, our government is grounded on the American people, on public opinion. Yeah. 
for the moment, that's how it operates. Mm -hmm. So the public, the public acting together and making their voice known can have a huge power to it, a huge impact. You know, thinking about like cancel culture, think about what happens when people join up on social media and start to boycott something or protest something. And then you see, partly because it's affecting the the bottom line, it's affecting, you know, profits, but still you can see people speak up about something and then you can see that there's a response. I think it's tempting in this kind of a moment where things seem so dark to assume that we're just sort of drifting in a bad direction. And I think it's vitally important, particularly important at this moment to remember that what you do and what you say and what you accept and what you don't accept and how you respond to it, even you just as one person can have an enormous impact. So, you know, a moment of extreme contingency, it's true that things can go in a very bad direction, mm -hmm. but it's also true that in that kind of unknown moment, there can be positive change. If people are willing to stand up and, and be present in that moment and push things towards being better than they have been before. So I, I kind of end up holding on to the fact that we honestly don't know what's going to happen and it's possible that really bad things are going to happen. We don't know that. And even if some of them do, nothing is necessarily absolute after that point. So I, I just encourage people listening now to remember that what they do and what they think and and how they behave in this moment matters a lot. Right on. Well, Joanne, we have placed a, a number of questions related in one way or another to national security into what we call the chatterbox. Um, and I'm going to reach into the chatterbox and remove a random question. You may get something uh -oh. about James Bond. <laughs> you may get you may get something about uh well let's see. Let's all right. Here is our final question for you. Oh, this one is actually quite appropriate. Name one dead political or national security related leader from any era that we could really use right now. Oh, wow. Um, well, okay. So this is going to be very typical of me because the first two people who come to mind, um, neither one of them individually uh, would be ideal, but it's the fact that they were both there at the same time that might end up making them useful. Mm. Um, I, I write about and work a lot on the, the, the founders and the founding period. Yeah. And when you think about national security and American relations with the rest of the world, I think of two different modes of doing that. And on the one hand, I think of Alexander Hamilton, who very much was all about defending national honor mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with force if necessary. Yeah. He, he was kind of a fist clenched dealing with the rest of the world kind of person. Mm -hmm. Then I think of Thomas Jefferson, who was very much, you know, well, we can have an embargo and we can get what we want without any force at all. And we can interact with the rest of the world and spread the spark of liberty and democracy. Mm. I don't think either one of those modes of achieving things in and of itself can work probably ever in and of itself, but certainly not right now. But I think that what's true now is certainly what was true in the founding. And that is what was important in the founding was that you had those views together at the same time. Right. And you had the ability of people with those views to exchange them and come up with a path that made sense. Mm -hmm. And I would say right now, there is no one individual that's going to, and this is true in so many ways uh, in our politics of the moment that people keep sort of lurching towards someone who's going to save the day. I don't think there's one figure that I can point to, but what I can point to is that if you look at a spectrum of ways of dealing with national security, force or 
collegiality, no force at all. I think we need the ability to have both of those voices present and to have them be able to engage in conversation and come up with a policy that makes sense in the moment. And I would not imagine either Alexander Hamilton or Thomas Jefferson having any patience for violence in Congress itself. No, that that neither one of them would be thrilled with that because they actually, one way or another, um, Jefferson wasn't really as um, much of a promoter of a powerful central national government, but they respected the stability of political institutions. They had helped create them in one way or another. They understood that they were fragile and they understood that there needed to be limits. This has been a pleasure, Joanne. Thank you for joining us on Chatter. Thank you so much for having me. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.